This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am so excited to be talking with Catherine Arden. I'm sure all of you remember the Winter Night trilogy, The Bear and the Nightingale, and The Lot, some incredible historical fantasy. Then, moving on to the Small Spaces series for young readers, and back into the world of the adult fiction with the warm hands of ghosts. I am so excited to talk about this book. Um, Thank you so much for having me on, Jenna. I am super excited to talk about it, too. So I always like to start with the authors sort of describing the book in their own words, because I can talk about it, but I think it always is a little bit more fun to hear you describe the book for us. Um, Yes, absolutely. So The Warm Hands of Ghosts is a historical fantasy, or maybe you'd call it historical fiction with like a speculative twist. It is set in the final the final years of World War One, so the end of 1917 and the beginning of 1918. The main character is a Canadian field nurse who was wounded at the front lines in Belgium during the war and is evacuated home to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where a sort of disaster occurs. And following this disaster, she gets word that her brother has been killed in action. But something about this doesn't seem right to her. And so she returns to the front lines to find out what happened to him. That's kind of the premise that gets the book rolling. It came out of my, my fascination with the time period and my desire to kind of think through ideas and concepts from that period in a book form. So I guess I was wondering how we started in this time period. You have a really distinct, very different historical period that you've touched on in your Winter Night trilogy and then moved contemporary for small spaces. And now we're here in World War I. So how did we get to this point? That's a great question. I think to a certain extent, I'm kind of a magpie. I, I see what catches my eye and chase it. I've always loved places in history where the fantastical can be made to seem plausible. My first book set in medieval Russia really fit that bill because it was a time that feels so remote. And so, so many gaps in the historical record give you space to put fantasy in. In the case of World War I, it was a time that was so strange, even to people living through it, that it was also a place where the fantastical could be slipped into history in a way that I felt was plausible. The, the thing that started the book for me was I saw a picture, a well-known picture. It's of a, a German cavalry officer um, on a horse holding a spear, like kind of a knight-errant figure, but he's wearing a gas mask. It's a very surreal picture. Um, it's, it's kind of knight-errant. It's kind of techno-horror. It's very strange. And if you dig into the history of World War I, you find all kinds of these strange juxtapositions. You find like cavalry charging tanks experimental suits of armor versus artillery, guns that could shoot 50 miles, but you can't talk to the guy in the next trench because there's no radios, messenger pigeons, right? Dogs with um, first aid kits in their backs, like going to wounded men. It's a very strange time period um, when the 19th century sort of hit the 20th very violently and everything is, is chaotic and it feels very surreal. The word I've used often in describing this period for me is steampunk. Because it's this like very, very strange mix of modernity and not, right? And I found it fascinating. And I, what I wanted to catch in this book, The Warm Hands of Ghosts, is a sense of that world in flux, in transition. It's a world that's very surreal, even to its people who are living through it. So that was kind of the first inspiration for the novel. 
It is one of those time periods that seems like it can't all be happening at the same time with when you've got sort of these bombings and, you know, automatic weapons, but you've also still got soldiers with bayonets who are running up and doing frontline sort of like attacks in that way. It's so, it doesn't seem like both of those things should be happening at the same time. There was so much change. It was very strange. I mean, if you think about it, what the Wright brothers flew in what, 1907? And then in 1914, they're bringing up reconnaissance planes to, um, fly the battlefield and then someone has a bright idea of like bringing up a pistol and, and shooting at the guy who's flying for the opposite side and then within like two years you have like machine guns mounted on planes and aerial combat like it's happening so fast and you start the war with with no trucks only trains um your fastest like individual sort of like units are on horseback right and the war saw the invention of the tank the first like large-scale use of trucks like it just it was a massive change in a very short time frame, um, which is very disorienting. You see sort of the advent of chemical warfare. You see yep. this trench warfare, which Definitely. is so brutal mm -hmm. and so horrific. Mm -hmm. And yet it was also this time where there's these, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of young men out on the front lines looking for their glory and looking for, you know, this pride of country. And yet the reality of what that was. I mean, I do think the glory faded quickly. I think that's kind of oh, yeah. the, the very, that's, that's, ever since All Quiet in the Western Front, that's been kind of the thesis of most World War I books is like disillusionment. It's very, very valid. It's an important, important piece. But I kind of wanted to find a new kind of note in, in that history. This is so multifaceted. One thing I noticed in, in kind of building my book is that so many authors like to frame this war in apocalyptic terms. Um, in part because very basically the war years map well onto the biblical book of Revelation, right? The four horsemen, death check, famine check, plague. There was the flu pandemic in 1918, um, which killed many people. War, obviously, it was just a time that felt like the apocalypse. Um, and that was kind of my way into fantasy, right? Because many authors before me had described the war in these kind of giant apocalyptic terms. And in thinking of the war along those lines, I remember this sort of one quote from the biblical book of Revelation, which goes, and the prophet said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old ones had passed away. And sort of the question I felt myself volleying back was, did you see a new hell um, too? Because that seems like you're missing part of the trio. Um, where's the new underworld? And it's funny because I think we did a little bit because the 20th century ushered in sort of these earthly hellscapes, like the Battle of Passchendaele during World War I. Um, famously, I was in Dresden um, during World War II, um, Hiroshima, Auschwitz, like these places that feel like, like earthly hellscapes, right? And it was interesting to me because in sort of classical literature, hell is a fantastical place, right? You have um, the city of Pandemonium. In Paradise Lost, you have the nine circles of hell and like Dante's Inferno. You have, you know, Odysseus visits the underworld in the Odyssey, et cetera, et cetera. And this transition from like sort of fantastical hellscapes to like earthly hellscapes felt like part of this sort of vague notion of the apocalypse that I was building in my head. And of course, the, the, the follow-up question that you know, comes naturally is, what does the devil do in a hell made by people? Then what? And that was really the sort of fundamental question that drove the novel, especially the fantasy aspects. And I think, too, something we 
briefly started talking about right before we started recording was that there are not as many of these representations. We have many representations of sort of the later earthly hells, like you mentioned, World War II and Hiroshima, but World War I, I think, sort of goes underserved and underrepresented, maybe even in our consciousness. I think in the United States, especially since we entered so late and we missed, I think, a lot of the truly horrifying pieces of what that war was and sort of the longevity of it and what that meant on a grander scale. And so I think sometimes we're not as attuned to the scale of the losses that some other countries faced post-World War I. I would definitely agree. World War II was kind of the the American war, um, for sure. I mean, they didn't get a World War I monument on the National Mall until uh, 2018, the War Centennial, I think. It's not finished um, as of now. So it's just not something that lands the same way um, for Americans, but at the same time. The largest American cemetery abroad is not Normandy. Um, it's the Ain Marne American Cemetery um, in Belleau, France, which is a World War I cemetery. Right. So definitely Americans were present in the conflict and they did perish there. Um, it's just something that doesn't have the same resonance emotionally, I think, for some reason. And I think that there's, you know, we've started to, like you mentioned, All Quiet on the Western Front. That sort of had its resurgence last year with that new film coming the new adaptation, and there is some other literature and things, but there is sort of this fantastical element to the scale of it that I think lends itself very well, like you said, to additions of some speculation, of some fantasy. And I think any time where there's a world in flux, like we were at that moment, where everything is happening so fast, everything's changing so fast, in certain ways, you know, similar to how technology changes now, that we are constantly trying to keep, keep up with yep. that constant change. And we are always, it feels like maybe a little half step behind from what really is happening. And that's those little gaps are where the fantastical can slip in. I mean, I'm, my friends, I'm a big horror fan. And I think fantasy, in the same way as horror, one of the best aspects of these genres is that it allows you to embody and explore things that otherwise can't be embodied or explored. The best horror gives a voice and a shape to things that are disembodied, right? emotions, feelings, terrors, right? And I think fantasy is the same way. You can give a shape to abstracts. And that was what I hope to do with this book and with especially the fantastical element of it is to take some of these abstract notions about change and about loss and about moving on and give them, give myself a way to explore them concretely on the page. That's one of the great joys of like the fantasy horror, like speculative genre of literature. I think something that allows the reader in so well is the characters that you've created to sort of bring us along into this world. I think without sort of the eyes of Laura and Freddie guiding us through these incredible times, it would be a little overwhelming. But you managed to give us this macro world, but also these micro, you know, conflicts and struggles that really allow us in and to be like, oh yeah, maybe I can't imagine what this grand scheme of this war would be like, but I can imagine what it would be like to have these feelings about loss and grief and love that I wonder how those two voices sort of came to you and you created these characters. I mean, so Lauren and Freddie are the protagonists of The Warm Hands of Ghosts, a book told in two perspectives that alternate chapters between this brother and his sister. This is very, very unscientific, but I think there are some authors who start with a character and then build their story around the person they've envisioned. 
I think there's authors who build the plot first and then build their characters into their plots. I find myself doing the latter. Usually I feel like plot comes first um, because certain kinds of story demand certain kinds of characters, right? And it's easier for me to shift my characters and have them change and grow to suit my plot than vice versa. Um, And so from the get-go, I knew the kind of characters I wanted to make the story work. And that guided me in building their personalities. Often characters will also surprise you on the page, what they say, how they react. Um, and that helps build them as people too. I think sort of the biggest thing I try and keep in mind for attempting to build a multifaceted character is that heroes make mistakes and villains are human, keeping every single character's humanity in mind, which means they have understandable and relatable desires and aspirations. And villains also have relatable desires and aspirations. Um, helps keep it feeling alive instead of feeling like cardboard cutouts. One thing I struggled with in this novel in particular in characterization is that war and being in war flattens, right? It's a, it's a flattening it force, right? It, it narrows your scope. It narrows what you want. It narrows what you believe. It, it changes people. Um, and so trying to build characters who feel alive, but also feel true to how people might have reacted to their circumstances at that time was a challenge. Um, My other challenge is that the big theme of the novel was a world in transition. Um, And the two siblings in this novel um, sort of stand on on either side of that transition. The brother is a 19th century character and the sister is a 20th century character. Um, And getting their mindsets and their voices right to kind of make that that shift believable was also challenging um but it was interesting to do and I enjoyed I I enjoyed my characters so I think the the dual points of view is really key in this story that we're getting both perspectives as we go through because I think there is a book that could exist that is solely from either person's perspective but I don't think it gives us that same richness and that same perspective that propels things along in the same way. I mean, the thing about books is there could be any, like there's a million, it's like life, right? There's a million different possibilities for everything. And one of the challenges of writing is sort of curating which idea you want to use because there's so many of them. Um, and World War I, I think one of the barriers to, to having more fiction about World War I is the war itself is very slogging. It's heavy, it's slow, it's repetitive. It feels futile, right? And a novel is supposed to move, is supposed to change, is supposed to have momentum, is supposed to bring you to somewhere else as a reader. And finding that momentum in a world that is stuck is challenging, right? It's it's very difficult to, to make the world feel real, but also have a book that doesn't just slog you over and over through the same kind of place. That's the thing about that sort of oppressive feeling of that trench warfare and and describing it and sort of understanding and putting yourself in that moment of like that is your day in and day out and and there's no sort of movement there and it's one thing when we're reading and you can sort of look at the dates in the book and know okay you know we're we're reaching this point or reaching that point but for you know Mm -hmm. the people there that that could be indefinite though I will say you did manage to give me one of my favorite characters that I have read in a book recently which is my dear sweet Pim Penelope Shaw she really 
took my heart in about 4,000 different directions, but I loved her very much. Um, she was a fun character to write. So again, right with the with the uh, different pieces, like she's she's sort of like this Victorian aid a little bit. I don't want to spoil anything, but I think this is this is okay to say. I read as a famous um, little like article that a woman apparently wrote into a newspaper during the war. Um, it's called like I think it's called like a letter from a little mother, and it's very very scary. Um, this letter because this woman's like our dear sweet boys. We give we raise them and give them up to die. And it's a glory to us and a joy to like the, the, you know, the homeland and stuff. And it's, it's very frightening. I, I don't know if it was propaganda or if it's a real actual person um, writing this, but, but the, the character Penelope Shaw in this book is a mother herself. And she's kind of my answer to that letter, right? Um, where it was supposed to be like good and glorious to like raise your child and hand them over um, to mechanized warfare. And there are a few characters in the book, and she's one of them, where you can sort of feel where their story might take them, and you might realize it a half a step before they do, and you can't do anything to stop it, and you just have to sort of ride along with it and see, you know, how it's going to play out. But the sort of emotions that come up in this time, it is, like you said, there is so much of that flattening, that sort of trauma that goes through everything and so they didn't have language for you know some of the things that they were seeing these soldiers face or seeing these um the nurses the doctors these people who are in that front line they didn't have the language yet to describe fully you know shell shock is one thing but what they were feeling but there's also a lot of emotion and grief and love and joy that finds its way through you know i'm not sure we have language today I think one one thing that really struck me and read I wrote a bunch of memoirs. A lot of folks wrote memoirs from this time period. And a lot of facts, a lot of dates, a lot of scenes like set in these books. No one, no memoirist expressed how they were feeling at any point. Right? Like somebody could in detail describe like a scene, you know, a a trench raid, a death, um, a terrifying ordeal, something, something, something. But in all of these scenes that I read from various memoirists, no one ever said, I felt X. I felt Y. I was frightened. I was sad. The most you get is like, it was a shame that like X person died. It really struck me as missing emotional context. And I almost feel like in part it was cultural, um, but in part it's like some things don't have words. Some feelings, if you put words to them, become too big to handle. And I wanted to honor that as well in the novel. I think that's something that any sort of war fiction sort of brushes up against, especially for the majority of us who have never experienced something quite like that and and probably never, hopefully, you know, never will come right up against that, especially right up against that concept of death. And what would you do if you could avoid that pain and that fear, which is, you know, another thing that comes up in this novel is what would you do to avoid or what would you do to save yourself from some of that feeling? Yes. Um, that is kind of at the heart of the novel is what would you do to escape, I guess, trauma? How far would you go? And sort of, which is sort of the greater lesser of two evils. Because I think one sort of interesting thing that I, that grew in the, over the course of the book is how the definition of evil seemed to change, right? Because in sort of the classical sense, the devil is this character who, sees you, sees your flaws, and exploits them, right? Um, sort of like understands the individual human soul. Whereas in 
this sort of giant, large-scale mechanized war, human souls don't matter at all, right? It, it doesn't matter if you're brave or scared or nice or evil or ugly. You might die anyway. Like, it's very, very impersonal. And the shift from, like, evil being intensely personal to being utterly impersonal felt very important and interesting to me. So um, that was another kind of key, key foundation of this book. I do also want to talk about the Paradise Lost of it all and the influence of Paradise Lost on this as a text. Um, the book has a lot of influences. I think Paradise Lost is a huge one. Um, the Mikhail Bulgakov's novel, The Master and Margarita, is definitely there. Um, a lot of World War I fiction um, has little pieces. Um, there's a real foundation in Greek myth as well. Um, there's a Orpheus and Eurydice vibe, um, especially a little bit of Hades and Persephone as well. Um, it definitely is a book that has its roots in a lot of different things. Um, for Paradise Lost in particular, I think the, one of the most fascinating characters you, you've ever read in a poem is, is Milton Satan, right? He's a character um, that I think Milton probably surprised himself with how interesting he became. Obviously, Milton made him that way in order to like show his readers how easy it is to fall. Right. Because you as a reader find yourself being like, oh, this guy's kind of cool. He's fierce. He has goals. He's funny sometimes, like all this stuff. And I, again, was so fascinated by the idea of this colorful, interesting, very human character set in the, the, the bleak waste of a modern hellscape. Right. They don't fit. And these, these places where they don't fit, I think, created this sort of rich landscape of. For, for a writer, I guess. And I know it feels like we're probably for our listeners, like we're talking around a bunch of things, but there's so many really good moments that I want readers to experience for themselves as they go through, especially involving some of these, our character of evil, we'll say. But at the same time, I think that the grandness and the scale of Paradise Lost and a lot of those other epics that you just mentioned really fit so well up against this backdrop of this huge mechanized war system i mean it's funny because like the the chapter titles are all taken from either paradise lost or the book of revelation and i feel like the, the grandness and the fantasticalness set against the reality sort of echo and emphasize each other a little bit um they, they seem to fit well just the size i think was something that made them fit but also the dissonance too right of of the colorful poetry versus the realities of war. Like there were, it was, it was really interesting to put them together and challenging to get them to fit in a way that made any kind of sense. And I think it shows too, with not only this book, but with any of your work, the level of research and detail that goes in to sort of create this world. We talk a lot about world building when it comes to fantasy, and I think it applies doubly so when you're writing something in that historical space as well, because you have to create both but in a way that doesn't feel like you're just regurgitating details at me. And I never felt that way in this book. It's very like atmospheric and creates a space for you without laying everything out. And at the same time, I got all the things I need to know to sort of put me right there. I mean, that's a drafting issue. What you do is you, you do a lot of research and then you start writing and every like third paragraph, you're like, in this essay, I will right? and give somebody <laughs> a lecture on like something like, like, ah, yes, trench warfare. Ah, yes, tanks. Ah, yes, this disaster. Um, but then you go back in your second draft and say, okay, delete, delete, delete. Because once the ambient knowledge is there on the page, people pick it up from context. They don't need you to do like this in this essay, I will. Look at my research. We go me. People will get what you're putting down if you have the knowledge there. Um, and nobody wants to read 
I don't feel like sort of a long discourse on some fun thing you discovered. I definitely am a lover of the author's note in part because I can then go back and write my essay that I had to take out of the main, the main text. And this book is an author's note, so it kind of goes back and reiterates some of my thoughts and feelings that I could not put in the novel. Here's the thing I always think about when I think of World War I that just shapes my entire reading is it was wet. Everything seems wet and damp and awful. And that really, I'm like, as soon as I can, like, I mean, there's so many scenes, I think, especially in the beginning of this, where I'm thinking of, from Freddie's perspective, where I'm just like, they never felt dry. And that really stresses me out. No. Well, I mean, if you think about it, you have the Western Front, which was wet, the Eastern Front, which was cold, and right. Gallipoli, which is hot and awful. So the Western Front, I mean, the, a big chunk of that is because the British in particular um, had this sector in Belgium, which... Um, is this farmland that had been very, very swampy and over centuries had been reclaimed from the water with these system of dikes and canals to keep the water out of the farmland. But of course, bombardment destroyed all that. And so the, the ambient water in the land just refilled the trenches, right? The water had to go somewhere. And so I think since we as Anglophones, English speakers, have a lot of our accounts of the war from the British who were in this very wet environment, um, we think of the war as like wet. Um, it kind of comes to that. And yes, it was awful. Very damp. I know this book took you quite a while to write. This was an endeavor. And you yes. did traveling and you did a lot of things to sort of shape your research, which I think gives a little bit. I think you can feel that in the book more so. Like there are things that are there because you, you've experienced them and you can pass them along for us. The biggest thing I got from traveling was ambience. Oddly enough, not in Belgium. The book is set in Belgium. But the Belgians after the war worked very hard to reclaim the war zone. They um, dug up the shells that were still on the ground. Um, they filled in the, the craters. They, they made it farmland again. The country's too small to lose a bunch of its farmland to like war sites. They're still finding you know, shells and bodies in Belgium today from the war. But in France, which is a much bigger country, um, a lot of the worst hit sort of battlefields were declared like zone rouge, like these red zones, and just left alone. And so if you go to France, just around Verdun, um, you can just see a landscape that looks like the moon with trees because it's so cratered. It looks so unnatural. Um, and it's just because this, this sort of area of land was, was shelled a million times, two million, 10 million, and just left alone after that to regrow. And so it looks very strange. And there's still old trenches there. There's old emplacements. There's old forts. A lot of the infrastructure of the war is still in place. You can still find old bottles, old forks, old bales of um, barbed wire just lying in the woods. It's very uncurated. It's just kind of all there still. And you get a sense of the scale of the conflict. And also there's haunted spots, like a couple of places. If you're there after dusk, you're like, oh, the ghosts are very angry and you leave again. Like it just, I'm not a, a massively superstitious person, but there's places there that have just very, very, very bad vibes. And all of that was there when I was writing. The sense of like this kind of world pulled apart. And I think understanding that is something that historical fantasy and these sort of speculative books allows us in a little bit better. I think it's a little more accessible and understandable when, when we're put in this perspective versus just, you know, reading some of those more challenging accounts, those memoirs, which are incredible and have so much to offer, but can be a little overpowering, overwhelming to just go into without some other knowledge 
But I think that's sort of what historical fantasy brings us in general a lot, is a is it just a new entry point to a lot of things that we might only know a little bit about. I mean, the World War One genre of fiction, I think in part because it's been so overshadowed by this one masterpiece, All Quiet on the Western Front, definitely has fallen into types of novel, right? There's the disillusionment check, there's the girl left at home check. Like there's there's things, there's, you know, there's sort of doomed youth, right, is a thing. And all those things are so important and so valid and so present. But I think one way to shake up a genre of historical fiction that's very kind of classical tropes and it's like spaces is to um throw in a little bit of fantasy. And I think it helped me look at the history differently, which is the role of fantasy in some senses. I think it is. I mean, so often fantasy in general, even when it's high fantasy or, you know, completely separate from our world, is so often used to mirror back these social issues that we encounter. And so it really isn't much of a step in any direction to be like, well, when we start with our own world, this just amplifies us being able to look at some of those same issues. I mean, if you look at Tolkien, for example, who fought in the First World War, a lot of his descriptions of landscapes, like the area of Mordor and the surrounding lands, a lot of that could come straight out of a memoir about the Western Front, right? He was near Mons in Belgium. And like water that burns your mouth, like smoking pits, slag heaps, mud, swamp, bodies, like all that is not something he imagined. He lived that, right? And then his entire worldview about this threat from the East, this industrialization, like coming over to cover like three peoples of the world, like this whole world and sense of the world was hugely influenced by the war, right? And so it's hard to see you know, the inventor of fantasy almost in some ways, the inventor of the modern fantasy genre, separately from his experiences in this one conflict. I feel like I'm never going to look at the battle at Helm's Deep quite the same way. Yeah, that made makes a lot of sense. Or the Fangorn Forest itself, you know, like that, where it meets the uh, industrialization of, of Mordor. It's, yeah, it, it all tracks. And I think that we don't always like to look at fantasy in that realm. Sometimes we want to be like, no, that's completely separate and I don't have to think too hard about it. But I mean, the great thing about fantasy and honestly horror too, is that it allows you to take a step back from the real world and look at things that impact the real world in a space that feels safe, right? Because there's hobbits in it. You know, there's elves. It's not our world. But the themes and the images pulled from the world can be looked at differently given this new space. Another kind of escape, right? Yes. I mean, we've started talking about some other authors, but I, I always have to ask, and we've talked about some of the influences on this book in general, but on your writing as a whole, do you have some sort of literary influences that you find yourself coming back to again and again? Honestly, a lot of historical fiction and fantasy, but kind of my deep, my, my favorite author, and I, I think she will always have a top spot, is Dorothy Dunnett, um, a wonderful Scottish writer of historical fiction. Um, and another sort of mid-century writer, um, Mary Renault, who writes um, Greek myth, who has written some fantastic Greek myth retellings that sort of skate the boundary between history and mythology. Um, so those are two absolute favorites. Um, when I was a kid, I read a lot of um, Robin McKinley, who does fairy tale retellings, which I loved as a, as a younger younger reader. And as an adult, I read so many things. I read, I read horror, I read historical fiction, I read fantasy. I love Naomi Novik. Um, I love Stephen Graham Jones. Like, I just, I kind of, run the gamut a little bit with with my reading and I do think that it's hard to know what exactly 
are your writerly influences. You can have writers you like and read a lot and come back to, but I feel like it all goes in this kind of churning space in your head and then it comes out yourself. And it's hard to know exactly like which writer is the backbone, but I think most writers have a lot of other writers in their heads um, with their words and their ideas kind of churning around. And my question that I love so much that, you know, a lot of authors maybe don't, but I have to say, I know that this book was with you for a long time. So I know that there's probably, you know, a degree of needing to step back for a moment. But is there anything on the horizon that we can look forward to from you? Oh, sure. Um, I'm publishing a picture book in September. Total departure, like a little picture book for kids with illustrations. Um, and fantastic illustrator Zara Marwan is doing the pictures. And I'm very excited for that. It's called The Strangest Fish. It's about a, it's about a fish and a girl at a county fair. Um, it's very cute. I'm working on a lighter book for adults um, set in the modern day, which I don't want to like give too many details about. And then I'm working on a book for kids, which I am really enjoying. So I, I like having multiple things going. It's fun. I think that's a good plan. And we obviously, there's so many readers out there of all ages who scan books, bookstore shelves for that new thing from you. So I think that there will be a lot of excited people in the coming years. It is fun shifting audiences. I do enjoy looking at different audiences. It's, it's, it's good for the author's voice, I think, looking at different people and writing for them. I think having that ability to move back and forth between the adult space and a younger reader space gives you that agility to sort of create a voice for yourself in a lot of different spheres. I, I enjoy it. I think it enriches um, me as a writer, and I really appreciate having the chance to do it. And I can't wait for everything that comes, and I can't wait for people to get their hands on the warm hands of ghosts because they're warm hands on that warm book because <laughs> it's truly something that I think a lot of people will enjoy, whether they're coming for the historical fiction, whether they're coming for a little bit of romance, whether they're coming for that fantasy element, they're going to find something that they're really going to love. I hope people enjoy it, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Ewan Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Young Si Chu is back with a new novel. I'm so excited about this. The Ghost Bride was, at the time, we called the program the Discover Great New Writers Program. And it was picked back in 2013. It's been so long since The Ghost Bride came out. And we're going to touch on it. If you haven't read The Ghost Bride, please go back and pick it up. It became a bestseller, so many of you have actually read it. The Night Tiger was her second novel. It was also a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. And now we have The Fox Wife. And we have left Malaysia. First two books, obviously, were set in different time periods in Malaysia. And now we're in northern China. And Yangshi, I'm going to ask you, actually, to explain why we had to move to an entirely new country because it matters. Well, thank you so much, Miwa. I am a big fan of yours and it's such an honor to be with you today. I'm very thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and, you know, that's a, that's a great question about why Manchuria, northeastern China, and, and it's all because of foxes, as you've probably deduced. You know, the idea of the shape-shifting fox is common to both Chinese, Japanese and Korean literature. But the ancestral home of the fox, I did a ton of research about foxes and the fox cult, the cult of the fox, lots of rabbit holes to go down. So, <laughs> um, and, then, and it really is Northeast China. And so when I started writing the novel, I did think, like, could I like, have them go to Malaysia or Malay at the time? And I thought that doesn't make much sense. Um, right. 
And I'd been wanting to write about after two novels set in a steamy tropical locale. Mm-hmm. I thought it'd be really nice to have something set in the snow. So winter and snow actually features a lot in this novel. I was so pleased when I started The Foxwife and I realized we were going to get dual narratives, which you do particularly well. And obviously we are staying spoiler free in this conversation because this book is such a delight and there's so many interesting things and you zig a lot when I thought you were going to zag. It was I just had a really good time reading this book. So really the two characters we're going to focus on, there's a woman named Snow, whose name translates to Snow, and there's a detective named Bao. And eventually their stories come together, which we're not going to explain exactly how that happens, but eventually their stories come together. But you also very deliberately chose a time period in China's history where there was a lot of change coming and people weren't necessarily prepared for what that meant. And I really loved this idea too. So can we talk about why you chose the end of the Qin dynasty? Yes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that you enjoyed that because I think in normal life, one would like a calm life. But in novels, I think change and chaos is always interesting. <laughs> I'm really sorry for the protagonists of a lot of novels. Um, <laughs> and I did think that, and by the way, in Chinese literature, like foxes and ghosts appear during times of chaos. Yeah. When a dynasty falls, they are considered omens or portents. So I thought it would be very apt that the novel is set in 1908. It is the last year of the Dowager Empress who's been, who's a former concubine who's been running the country. She's dying. You know, China is in upheaval. It's being carved up. And the Northeast is actually being, Northeast China, which was called Manchuria at the time, um, was being fought over by the Russians, the Japanese, and also the Chinese. And the other different ethnic groups, like the Manchus, the Mongolians, it's always been a very interesting area, which is right on the Korean border as well. So I thought if anyone was going to profit off chaos, it would be foxes. (laughs) So that's why I chose that time period. I also think it's a time that isn't often talked about very much in historical novels. The last sort of piece of art that I remember really sort of directly dealing with this period is The Last Emperor, that Bertolucci film. And I think that film is like more than 40 years old. I think that came out like the end of the 80s. I think it's a really old Yeah, that totally dates me too. Right? No, I know. It's just like, oh, okay. And I have to say, like, I did quite enjoy it. It is is almost four hours long. (laughs) But you're absolutely right that this isn't a period that people necessarily gravitate towards. And even, I mean, there have been a couple of major biographies of the Dowager Empress, but mm-hmm. not a whole lot of mm-hmm. sort of, let's call it current scholarship on the period. I mean, there's some stuff that goes back to sort of the 60s and the mm-hmm. 70s, but it's weird mm-hmm. when you're reading a history that was written sort of 50 years before you got your hands on it and you're like, it, the lens is totally different. <laughs> like, yes. What is happening here? Who are you? <laughs> And, and you know, the other thing that I think that made um, this time period interesting to me was when I was a little girl, mm-hmm. my dad had a picture, of, of, I think it was like a photograph book of the end of the Qing dynasty. Oh, so it wow. was like, you know, those black and white photographs yeah, yeah. of 
officials of the Dowager Empress, she shows up right. with them because photography was new. It was a new art yep. at the time. And lots and lots of pictures of men and women, women with bound feet, some with mm-hmm. not, because they were beginning to phase that out. Um, and it was a fascinating world. I, mm-hmm. I remember leafing through that, but it was like a coffee table book. Um, yeah. And we didn't have a lot of books to read when I was a kid. So I looked at them a lot and I thought the faces, you know, the, fa- the expressions on the faces, mm-hmm. they haven't really changed. But mm-hmm. The clothing is all like very strange to us now. Right. So that's part of it. And photography was also such a class marker too. Like it was not available to a lot of people the way it is now. You know, we walk around with our cameras on our phones. Like this is mm-hmm. not, I mean, we're talking about giant glass plates like you know and everyone has to stand still and like it's just it's an entirely different thing and Mm -hmm. part of my fascination too with the fox wife is I knew sort of the Japanese folklore take on foxes Mm -hmm. but there were always women Mm -hmm. or at least the the stories I'd been told were all women and you know you give us a little bit of an expansive cast that's all I'm gonna say there's a little the Chinese take on it is so different and of course you know the Chinese send the fox lore out into Korea and Japan, kind of like Buddhism, you know, the way Buddhism sort of spreads. <laughs> but I love the idea that, once again, you're very grounded in a world that some people might sort of look at and go, huh, okay. And I'm like, well, if you can believe in Zeus and Athena and Ares and all of this, like, you know, maybe a fox can do a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I love that you I love that you say that because it's true, I think in East Asian cultures, everyone knows about foxes. But right. I didn't realize that many of my other friends were like, You wrote about foxes? Is this a book about talking animals? Oh, so, right. Um, right. Like, no, no, have you? And you know, you're bringing up the Greek myths. I, I think that's so apt because those are it's kind of a Western ethos that everyone knows about. But in the East, we're all quite familiar with the foxes. They are fascinating. In fact, the subject of foxes was actually super popular in the 1700s. There was this positive rage for fox stories. So mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I also read a lot of stories by this scholar called Pu Songling. And he's famous because he was actually a failed scholar. He failed his the imperial exams many times. He never got a good rank. But he's famous because he collated a collection of 500 strange tales, uh, which is called Liao Zhai Zhi. It's, and basically, it's the twilight zone of the 17th century. <laughs> he went around collecting stories about ghosts and foxes. And they informed so much of, I think, the literary imagination of, of East Asia. And within those stories, as you pointed out, they're actually both male and female foxes. They are disruptive creatures who look like humans and always come along, usually when you're studying for the exams. Like, I don't know, there's some obsession oh, with the imperial okay. exams here. So I always wondered, you know, when I read these stories when I was a kid, I always thought about why do the foxes come? Why do they care about humans? The stories are very human-centric. They are also patriarchal and male-centric because the protagonist is usually a scholar who is studying alone. The archetypal, you know, that's the tale is like, and then there's a knock on the door and this beautiful woman comes and disturbs his studies. Oh, my yes. goodness. But I was 
always fascinated by what happened on the other side of the door. Who were these creatures? Why did they bother? You know, and what happened in their own complicated lives? And while I was researching this book, it was, by the way, very fun to research because I not only looked into a lot of scholarship about the cult of the fox, but also I read a lot of purported first-person historical encounters with foxes. Not just <laughs> I, know, I know you're like, wait a minute. They were. It's just like nowadays, people be collecting stories about ghosts and um, they were in the Ming and Qing dynasties, mm-hmm. there were people who were very obsessed with foxes and they would go around interviewing people. Um, I also read a number of also Japanese accounts. The thing that struck me with these accounts is that they're all very peculiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very mm-hmm. strange. You know, I think this is really important because, you know, yeah. Asia sort of has this reputation. Everyone's very well behaved and polite and all of these other mm-hmm. things. And everyone plays by the rules. And I'm like, well, let us tell you a little bit about the literature because it gets super weird. And also people genuinely believe this. If you don't mm-hmm. have a way to explain a weird thing that has happened to you, mm-hmm. why not ascribe it to a fox? In the context of the 1700s, it makes perfect sense. You don't have an answer for it. Something goes boom in the woods. And also, I mean, I might not be the only person who's ever heard videos of foxes on like YouTube. And the screaming of the foxes sounds very weird. It's very Yeah, they sound like women. They sound like women it's, in distress, right? I mean, <laughs> very you can see where it comes from, right? Like yeah. this whole idea of, of foxes overlapping with people. But I just, mm-hmm. I kind of like the idea that these stories are so weird. Like mm-hmm. ghost, Japanese ghost stories, not meant to be read in dark spaces. <laughs> like leave <laughs> all the lights on, lock the doors, close the windows. They're freaky. You got to tell mm-hmm. a story, right? I mean, I, I really mm-hmm. do love the idea that you were reading all of these first person accounts. <laughs> I think it's great. I, I could tell you a lot of that. And they're very, like I said, they're very odd. They're disjointed. Mm-hmm. They don't always make sense. But the disjointedness and the strangeness makes them feel almost real. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure whoever was recounting them thought that they were real yeah. too, because it's not like if you were making a story, you wouldn't actually make a narrative in which someone throws bricks into your courtyard. So when I wrote The Fox Wife, I mm-hmm. put in as many of them as I could right. without going overboard. I think it speaks to our fascination with the unknown. You mentioned my previous book, The Night Tiger, and I do love animals. I'm really interested in animals. Yeah. And I'm also interested in the fact that I think as humans, we're always trying to figure out our surroundings. So when you meet the idea of an animal that can mm-hmm. change into a human, in some ways, it's sort of us trying to assess a stranger. Is this a real person? Is this, is this person trustworthy? Or are they other, some other kind of creature? And you can imagine being the dark woods and meeting someone, and you might think, why is there a young girl here in the woods? Maybe she's not human. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, things do happen to you in the woods. So I, I do really think it speaks to just this huge world of the other, that, and the sense of wonder mm-hmm. and mystery and also terror that we in our current man-made surroundings seldom experience now. I think that's totally true. The other thing is, too, I mean... Snow, very specifically, one of our main protagonists, the fox wife herself, she's really relatively powerless, mm-hmm. right? And we see this with Lilan in Ghost Bride, and we see this both with Ren and Jilin in 
Night Tiger as well. Like you're giving us people who are relatively powerless. Bao, who's another one of our narrators in Fox Wife, he's not necessarily powerless, but he's not the dude holding all the power. He's really mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. And the idea that these are the people you're centering the narrative on, right? They're not really the traditional heroes, heroines, center of attention in their world, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of fun to watch them figure out, right? You put them all under pressure in different ways. But the three novels do kind of sit in this continuum. You know, that's very insightful, actually. I I, I didn't set out to do that, but I, I do see that. And like I said, we all like peaceful times, but the protagonists <laughs> in novels, difficulty makes the story interesting. And it is true that I think most people historically did not have much power. And you're right that I think women, women are very vulnerable, children and old people, because Bao is old as well. And the difficulties they face in trying to get through the world, those are interesting. Many historical accounts are, they tend to be hero stories. And the hero is a young man, like Theseus, the great myth. You know, you're in the prime of your life and off you go to fight the, I don't know, the Minotaur, right? But it is so much harder to make your way through the world. And going back to the foxes, I did feel like, both as an animal and as a human, snow is very vulnerable. And that's something I tried to bring out in the novel. You know, the foxes, rather than being omnipotent, are always afraid of being caught, mm-hmm. boiled, skinned. You know, these are all things that they talk about in Chinese literature as well. And when the fox was caught, it was blah, blah, blah. And I thought, goodness, if you were reading this history as a fox, it's very alarming. And I think that's why she says in the novel that when, whenever humans encounter something new and strange, their first instinct is to kill it. So. I thought that was very interesting. I do. I was surprised by how vulnerable she feels sort of in the context of the Fox culture and community and everything else, because again, they're presented as tricksters. They're presented as Mm -hmm. the ones who can talk humans into, you know, maybe making some decisions they might not otherwise. That in fact, somehow they're given power. So that flip to me was really interesting. Uh, It was not what I was expecting at all. And I did get very attached. And I don't, I knew what you were, when I got the galley, I was not concerned that I was going to get, I'm not a watership down person. I, I'm <laughs> glad the book exists. I know there are many, many fans of that book. Rock on. That's great. I'm delighted that that book works for you. I mean, I loved Paddington when I was little, mm-hmm. sure, but you know, you do, or I got to a point where I was kind of like, mm, not for me. Mm-hmm. What you're doing here is sort of turning folklore and history on its ear completely. And, you know, there is that moment sort of towards the end of the Qin Dynasty where there is an actual exchange between sort of cultural exchange between students who are going from China to Japan. That gives our story a little bit of movement. Mm -hmm. You've got some class things happening that gives the story a little bit of movement, but it's also a detective story. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I mean, like it's a straight up, old school kind of, and there is this long sort of tradition too of detective stories throughout Asian literature. I was really enjoying it. I was like, okay. And and it's not quite, you know, Poirot or Miss Marlowe, like we're not talking, but watching Bao sort of figure out 
where he's going and what's going on and watching him put the pieces together. Sometimes I was a couple steps ahead of him. Sometimes he was maybe a step ahead of me. But can we talk about balancing Snow and Bao and their POVs? Because obviously they are going to come together at some point and we're just going to leave it at that. But it seems to me like you were having a really good time writing this book and that you had a really serious sense of play while mm. you were creating this world. Oh, well, thank you for your kind words. I did actually have a lot of fun with this book. I think Night Tiger dealt with a lot of rather heavy themes. Yeah. And when I was done with it, I thought, I want to write something cheerful for once. Tragic things do happen in this novel as well. And I do also feel that, you know, part of this time I was writing the novel, COVID was going on. And there's just so much, even today, I mean, horrible things happen in the world all the time. And I did feel like, for many of us, reading is kind of escape. Sometimes I just want to escape. And when I wrote this novel, I was thinking about that. The detective part, yes. I am also a big detective novel fan. I grew up on a steady diet of P.D. Right. James and Agatha Christie. Okay. And so there's always like, at one point, I think for Night Tiger, my editor was saying, don't you think there's been a lot of dead bodies? And I was like, well, I was thinking of, you know, and then there were none. I was like, shouldn't there be at least nine? No, I haven't got there yet. So, but I didn't, I wasn't planning this to be right. a dual point of view. Actually, it happened, I was writing, I'd written the first chapter and I sat on it. And then I wrote chapter two and suddenly a detective appeared. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this kind of thing just absolutely horrifies my husband because he says things like, why don't you have an outline? Everybody else has an outline. And it would save you a lot of this crying and rolling around on the right. floor. But the detective appeared and I thought, oh, ah, there's a detective and I can see him. And so I love that you referenced, um, you know, the East Asian love of detective novels. You know, you're absolutely correct. that China has a long history of detective yeah. stories. And so does Japan, mm -hmm. especially around the turn of the century with you know, Edogar, Ampo, and people like that. I spent part of my childhood in Japan. And I was listening to some of your earlier podcasts. You, I think you have a connection as well oh, with yeah. Taiwan and Japan. So there was just like a big explosion in mystery writing. And I did love um, putting that in because historically it fit with the time. And I also thought it fits in with the, the nature of how you think a fox would be. Like, they'd be deeply interested in like detective novels if they had to read anything. Well, and just the structure too, the way you cut back and forth. And I really liked the way the story unfurled. I kept being surprised. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to dance around something sort of very specifically because the way you bring everything together works so well, but I'm slightly concerned I might give something up. And <laughs> I do not want to do that. So I'm, I'm dancing around this for a second, but, mm -hmm. you know, the way you talk about where people live or how they behave towards each other, I mean, this is all sort of status stuff that you need to know in the back of your brain as you're writing about mm -hmm. these characters. And of course, you know, Snow is the ultimate outsider, right? Mm -hmm. But yet, she's been around for more than a minute. She's figured out some mm -hmm. stuff. So watching her struggle a little bit is really interesting mm -hmm. because she's doing a little bit of the well, I should know better. And then she's like, well, but some things don't change. And you're just kind of watching mm -hmm. her figure out. And then she has a couple of moments where she's like, listen, no, <laughs> you people, let me explain some things to you. 
And I just, I loved watching her journey and that interiority that we get between Snow and Bao mm-hmm. and the way this world sort of unfurls is just, it's so satisfying. Mm. And you've alluded a couple of times to the amount of research you had to do just for the Fox stories alone, but mm-hmm. you know, you clearly know your history as well. And how do you sort of bring all of this together, right? Ultimately, you want to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you do want to be entertained. But we can't really separate the entertainment piece from the actual, like, what we know kind of thing, right? It's like, you know, it's not like you're dropping a flying saucer in the middle of Manchuria in 1908, right? Like, and, Mm -hmm. you know, that can work in other books, but that's not the book you're writing. Mm -hmm. So I just want to talk about pulling all those elements in, because again, no Mm -hmm. outline. You're pantsing the entire novel. (laughs) Gosh, you know, that's very kind of you. I'm very honored that you enjoyed the history in it. And you're absolutely right. The the issue with historical fiction, I think, Mm -hmm. is treading this fine line in which the reader can appreciate and enjoy what's going on. But it's also not hit with the, and by the way, Bob, do you remember when the dynasty ended and the emperor was put under house arrest? (laughs) You know, both asides, uh, I think that's always a delicate line. And as an avid reader myself, you know, I like historical fiction. I used to be yeah. a sci-fi and fantasy. Mm-hmm. There's a certain point when you're like, okay, I cannot read about the 11 moons of whatever. I need to get on the story. So right. there is that balancing act. And also thinking like, you don't want to assume that your reader doesn't know because lots of readers are very well informed right. as well. Right. It was super, super interesting because I actually had to control myself and not go on and tell you lots of stuff about foxes and the religion and the fox medium, which is so interesting, mm-hmm. because um, I think the place that foxes hold in Northeast China historically has been this kind of folk religion, mm-hmm. animism, become a religion that dwindled so much so that I think I looked up quite recently until the 1950s or the 60s, within China, they were still fox shrines. But mm-hmm. um, with the advent of communism, these were all considered folk religions. They got rid of a ton of them. But mm-hmm. there were many, many temples in which there would be statues to the Buddha, and then behind it, there would be a fox statue. So you're still worshipping this animist deity. I won't go into too much detail, but I couldn't resist putting mediums, fox mediums, into the book as well, because I think that was a way for women, especially young women, to acquire power. It's very much like the medieval witch, you know. So if you claim to speak for the gods, you do get a certain amount of social protection. At the same time, the moment things go wrong, they'll be, oh no, it was you, the witch slash fox slash medium. It's time to get it's rid of It's always the you. girl's fault. It's always the girl's fault. And you're just like, really? Really? Yeah, Wait. You know, but going, oh, sorry. Uh, but going back to what, I love what you said as well about the powerless character. Because if you think about the nature of the shape-shifting fox, which is tricky, a tricky animal, who is a trickster? It is someone who does not have enough power to mm-hmm. rule outright. Right. They have to acquire things like stealing other people's gold cups. They have to convince people to do things for them. They don't actually have a lot of power in and of themselves. And we see that even reflected in the remnants of the fox religion and even how kind of divine power is expressed by fox mediums. Once again, you have to claim to speak for someone else. So the theme of lies and deception kind of runs through the novel. 
which I didn't think of until just now, actually. <laughs> well, it definitely does, but that's also the fun of fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Like, again, the interiority, like mm-hmm. we know things that your characters can't know. Yes. I love a close third person. I really do. But I, I really appreciate having, and not just because Snow is a fox. That's not, it's just, Bao is kind of this bumbly guy whose life was not what it was expected to be. And, and just mm-hmm. having all of that kind of information. And there's a whole cast that supports them. Don't misunderstand me. It's not just the two of them, but we're going to let everyone else discover them as they read this book because also the pacing and I'm not surprised to know that you read a ton of mystery fiction or a ton of sci-fi and fantasy because the pacing in all three of your books doesn't it doesn't race but it certainly doesn't slow down I mean these stories move in the best possible way and again I go back to the fact that you don't write with an outline and I'm like okay you're just living in these books until you're not, is what it sounds like to me as you write. You know, that's very perceptive of you, because actually, I think when the book is going well, that the Mm -hmm. characters start to move, they do things, they make uh, decisions that you didn't expect them to. And sometimes I will be driving to Trader Joe's, and then I'll be (laughs) mumbling in the car. My kids have said, like, Mommy, please, this look crazy. (laughs) But because you're like, oh, and then he said this, I see, I see, I need to write this down. So when things go well, it's really great. When they are not going well, then I feel like, oh my goodness, you know, who's the fool who wrote this book? Oh, it's me. <laughs> no. So I wouldn't recommend writing without an outline, but mm-hmm. I also feel it is like listening to music. Right. I would compare it to that. When the novel gets going, you have a sense like, and now I would like some, you know, fast tempo, something followed by some slow, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it is very much, as you said, absolutely like living in your head for a while, letting the characters talk to you um, and play out their lives. So kind of legendarily, when you were working on The Ghost Bride, your mom said to you, well, can't you write something nice? Like, why are you writing about ghosts? Which I find hysterical because anyone with an Asian mom can tell you that, (laughs) you know, Asian moms do not hold back. Mm -hmm. They will tell you what they are thinking and they'll just, you know, they just blurt it out and you're like, okay, I can translate from the Asian mom. And I... Mm -hmm. My Asian mom is the bomb, but they do have a way of presenting ideas where you're like, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> and I just, I love that story because I do, I was so pleased when The Ghost Bride landed on my desk. I felt like you were doing something really new and really smart and just the balance between everything you were getting in sort of about the colonial history of Malaya. And, you know, marriage in general and all of these things. And yet I got a really great story with a girl that I got really attached to very quickly. And I'm like, really? You're going to open that? Okay, you opened that door. You opened that (laughs) door. And you had not yet quit your day job. Were Mm -hmm. you still working as a management consultant as you were writing that? No, actually, I think I I did. Oh, you had? Okay. Yes. I I was balancing some small children and Uh, I would actually get babysitting and go to the, my public library That's and right. write there. So, yes. Well, tiny people are a job. So, you know, let's be clear on that. But I do, I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is something where there really kind of is something for everyone. Like you've got the ghost story, but you've got the mystery and you've got the great language and the great characters and stuff happens because sometimes in literary novels, stuff doesn't happen all that much. You have the stuff happening. And then we get the night tiger and you can see where you're building, 
Right. Now we're in Malaysia, what, in the 20s and 30s, right? Am I remembering? I think, okay. I think the 30s. Yeah. So we've jumped ahead sort of 50-ish years, but the terrain is familiar, mm-hmm. familiar enough. Mm-hmm. And then again, we've got lots of dead bodies. All sorts <laughs> of stuff is happening. And I feel like you took a lot of what you learned writing those two books. And this is how we get to the fox wife. And I'm just wondering if there's anything you might be able to say to someone who's sort of, you know, in the thick of their first or second book going, oh, how am I going to be able to do this? How do I push it? Like, what did you learn from book to book that got mm. us to this, this new novel? Because mm. the new one, I mean, mm. it's really great. Thank you again. You're, you're actually, you're too kind. I'm embarrassed now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> but um, it's very kind of you and glad you enjoyed them. And I do think there has been a learning process. You know, you mm-hmm. were very kind enough to talk about the pacing of novels. And I think one of the things I did learn was to try to pace them a little better. Now, actually, sometimes I look at the ghost bride and I, oh, the middle, there's a soggy middle. <laughs> so, um, okay. It's, a let, I wouldn't say soggy. I would just say, you know, debut novels have... <laughs> There's a rhythm to a debut novel, so I would, you know. Yeah. But one thing I did also learn was to mm-hmm. cut. So each yeah. of those novels went way over word length. They were okay. all about um, maybe double what they should have been. Mm-hmm. And The Fox Wife was the longest. So my long-suffering agent had said, you know, you, we've got to act, you've got to cut this book. And I thought, but I have so many anecdotes. And they're, you know, I don't know whether you've noticed, but the margins of the novel are a little bit wider because I wanted to fill them like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. With Which is a fancy. really good choice. It's a really good choice. For this book, it's a great choice. We are going to come back to the footnotes, though. But it's design-wise and also just creatively what you decided to do. It was very smart. Was very, oh, very smart. thank you. But I, I actually wanted to fill it with box stories, and I had to tell myself to stop. So that was one of the helpful things. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I think when writing, and I'm, I am by no means an expert, I, I do feel like the moment that you yourself start getting bored is when you've got to stop. Yeah. So you've got to keep going on. I think the reader can tell that you're writing about, oh, no, this train ride is going on for too long and I don't want to yeah. read it. <laughs> <laughs> so then you've got to cut. And one of the wonderful things that I discovered with the two points of view, which I, I didn't mm-hmm. realize until I started writing like this, is that you can cut much faster to the action. Yeah. And then there's less with one person point of view, sort of like, okay, now I've got to get on the bus. And with this, you can be like a month ahead, half a country away, mm-hmm. you know, across the ocean, this yep. was happening. So it's very handy uh, and it's been fun. Yeah. Well, especially too, when travel is, you know, trains and boats and rickshaw, like mm-hmm. travel is not very fast. There's a lot of walking. <laughs> People had to walk. I mean, you still have to get folks from, you know, the outsides of houses to the insides and not mm-hmm. just the inside, but you have to get them past the guest sort of rooms where you would sit <laughs> and wait, but like mm-hmm. you actually have to get them into the house. And that's a whole different thing. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot, a lot happening here. Mm-hmm. Are you working on a new thing? I mean, I know you take your time between, mm-hmm. it's roughly four years between each book. It's mm-hmm. not like it's, you know, forever and a day though. I am still having a moment with really 2013 Ghost Bride. Really? It was that long ago? Yeah, it's amazing. 
it's that's a trip that is you know my brain is kind of doing the time time is a construct but are you working on something new I am I'm working my fourth novel okay I haven't made much progress I hope my agent oh. is not looking <laughs> sorry Jenny <laughs> going very slowly but I, I I am working on another novel I went to I think it might be about ginseng um or, or plants Okay. And my husband's like, please don't tell people this. Nobody's as, you know, one of my favorite programs is the BBC's GQT. So Gardener's Question Time. And he said, please do not do this. I was like, it's fascinating. So I am working on that. I don't know whether it will actually go anywhere. So I, be you honest know. with you. We'll see. It might also be set in, it might also be set in northern China again. Yeah. I think it will be a historical novel mm-hmm. as well. I don't know. I feel like ginseng could still, I mean, because you're essentially writing about the people, not the actual plant. I mean, it's more about the mm-hmm. stories around the plant, but there are some crazy yes. stories that go with that plant too. And there are some, Absolutely. Like, yes. there's some stuff, if you think about like, you yeah. know, classical Chinese medicine and things like mm-hmm. that, but also like there's certain varieties of the ginseng that's crazy expensive and blah, blah. Well, you know what, what I was interested in is that ginseng looks like a person. Yeah, it does. And, it's really weird. And <laughs> it's often super weird. The idea of the mandrake is very yeah. similar to that of the ginseng. Mm-hmm. And that is, and as you pointed out, there's so many strange stories yes. about ginseng that becomes um, human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I'm moving into other, other eras, but I, I, I do think it's really interesting that we tend, we as humans, try to see our reflections all in everything. Right. You know, in clouds, in plants, in animals. Mm-hmm. And I think from every perspective, you get a different slice of human nature and yes. also what our joys, our hopes and fears are. It feels like a very you novel, to be honest. It just, why not play with these ideas that we, you know, we ascribe human character. I mean, that's animism in general. It's like, um, mm-hmm. hi, that's been sort of religious doctrine for lots of cultures around the world for a really long time and you know maybe some people still pr- actively practice it and some people don't but I also think that the, the wonder of the natural world yeah which is something that we don't think very much about in a man-made surroundings mm-hmm. so when I was a child I always liked to go out and wander around and you know when we lived in Malaysia my dad took us to the jungle a lot right. and also when we lived abroad I would always go to the woods and the forest and when you are there you feel very small. The world is more important than you. And it is also at the same time, a very freeing experience. I think that nowadays is some term for it, like forest bathing. (laughs) That is totally, there is this idea in Japanese Mm -hmm. culture that you just have to get out of the city Mm -hmm. and go walk through the woods and it will reset whatever's bugging Mm -hmm. you. And I mean, sometimes a really good walk in the woods is exactly what you need to fix whatever's ailing you i mean it doesn't matter where you are but it is kind of a very japanese thing Mm -hmm. and um i'm not great at sitting still that's really what it comes down to so i would Mm -hmm. much rather just go for a long walk Mm -hmm. and be out in the world but i think too if you think about the history of asia right and Mm -hmm. how much it's changed from an agrarian and this is across East Asia, right? And even into mm-hmm. South Asia, like the agrarian society gets replaced with machinery and mm-hmm. tech and all of these other things. And it's just completely mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. and quickly. And like yes, everything changed very really, fast. really quickly. Mining and all of this kind of stuff where you're like, huh, mm-hmm. that, wait, where did that building come from? I'm, I'm also honestly thinking of Rachel <laughs> yeah. Hang's novel. 
<laughs> the Great Reclamation, where she plays uh-huh. with some of the ideas behind building Singapore mm-hmm. as we know it. And part of it is filling in the harbor. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, and that's happened in New York. It's happened in Boston. It's certainly not mm-hmm. the only place where, you know, guys walk up to the water and go, yeah, we need some more pavement here. We're going to make some more <laughs> pavement. We need some more buildings. And yeah, it's I, happened I throughout that, Asia. Like, it, it's just, it's everywhere. You're absolutely right. It'll be like nine months later, there'll be a new building. Yeah. And I think as humans, maybe our brains are not quite ready to handle the speed at which this is happening. Right. You know, so as you were talking about walking through the woods, Walking through a landscape that you cannot control, mm-hmm. I think, is a very interesting experience. It is a humbling experience, and it's one which is kind of refreshing because then you no longer feel. I do think that there is a certain narcissistic quality about humans, mm-hmm. which we can't help, but at the same time, being relieved of that. For example, seeing a tree that is massive and ancient and old, it is actually both uplifting and kind of joyful. We stop thinking so much about what's going on in our own, like, little ant-like human lives. <laughs> but th- those places and times are becoming increasingly rare. Yeah. You know, as yeah. we build up the landscape. And I, I don't know what will happen to that in the future. Well, and not everyone has access the way mm-hmm. they used to, simply because in some cases you have to travel to a national park. Mm-hmm. And not everyone can mm-hmm. do that. I, I try to spend time in the desert in Southern California. And, you know, mentally it just, <laughs> mm-hmm. desert is a very weird place. And I'm certainly not backcountry hike. I am not meant to do mm-hmm. that. But is it quite nice to wander around and have a nice walk and then, you know, mm-hmm. go home? And sure. I think also see things that are older than us. Yeah. You know, even in cities, when they are trees, they're not that old, unless right. it is a very old city, you know. So in for example, in Tokyo, you'll find old trees, mm-hmm. but in the Bay Area, uh, not really, not so yeah. much. <laughs> you might have to go up, you know, to Mule Woods or something. I think seeing things in nature, things that remind us um, that we're not alone, right. and that is actually very refreshing. Hey, can we talk about influences for a second? I know you mentioned mm-hmm. P.D. James and Agatha mm-hmm. Christie, and I love that, but obviously they are not your only influences. And I'm just wondering who some of the other writers you might pull from. I, I think that one thing that Haruki Murakami does really well, and also Banana Yoshimoto, is the sense of the extraordinary happening in the ordinary. Yeah, yeah. You know, I like that. I think that I've always been searching for tales of wonder. Yeah. Um, and that is perhaps a, a universal kind of human liking, because wonder tales, fairy tales, these are all things that we like. The sense that something could happen in mm-hmm. the ordinary world, which is strange, unexpected, and magical. Um, right. I like, I think I like that surprise feeling. There's thousands of books available mm-hmm. for anyone to read nowadays. Mm-hmm. And it's such an honor for anyone to pick up a book. Like, and so I, I would hope that it is a good and perhaps refreshing experience. Well, given the characters that you deliver to us and and the stories that you tell. I think people are in for a treat with The Fox Wife. Before I let you go, so The Ghost Bride was on Netflix, and it's a very different experience from your book. It's fun. It's that whole Asian television film thing where you get the romance, you get the comedy, you get the action, you get everything. And, you know, sometimes we try to do that here and we don't quite hit it. And I feel like the Fox Wife really has that spirit 
it's a slightly more cinematic experience than the earlier two books, which are, they stand on their own in different ways. And they certainly have lots of different elements as well. But this one, I was laughing out loud a little more than I expected to in all the right ways, because some of these characters, I'm like, y'all. Um, <laughs> and you have to keep to the no spoilers thing. So you know what I'm talking, you know, I know you know <laughs> what I'm referring to. But are we going to see more of that in your work? Because it feels like this is a new sort of marker for you. Oh, you know that. You know, I am so glad you enjoyed that because I, I, I do love this kind of East Asian experience with you know movies in which you've got everything: mm -hmm. comedy, romance, and tragedy, and then as well as you know all kinds of stuff. And I didn't set out to do it with a box wife, but it happened. It was very enjoyable. It was very fun. And at the same time, I think I also tried to keep there's a there's a slightly different perspective from the fox in which. You're also privy to a non-human creature, you know. So sometimes some of the things they think and say are just like, oh, "What was that?" So the voice of the fox, I think, was was really delightful. It was a fun experience yeah. for me. I, I hope it was fun for readers as well. And I think the fox is a playful creature as well. It is tricky. It's sly, and I'm really glad that it was a fun book for you. And I I'm glad that you laughed because. Yes, they do say some things do happen, which I was like, yeah, we can't. This? we can't. I just, I think other readers, I mean, certainly this reader got everything I was hoping to get out of The Foxwife, but I'm looking forward to other folks discovering these characters in the story. And like you said, there's a lot here, but it's everything is in service of story. It is so entertaining and it's so smart. And listen, if you happen to know the history, great. If you don't, that's no barrier to entry at all. It's a great story with great characters and there's some fun stuff and there's some heavy stuff and there's just, it's a really good time. That's really what I, yeah, The Fox Wife is just a really good time. So Yangtze, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. This was so much fun. Let's do it again. Oh, Miwa, thank you. I am a big fan of yours and it, it was such an honor and such a pleasure today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hey readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to pick up for this special Double Shot episode. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy Mary in Beaumont, Texas. Hi Mary, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. We have two fantastic authors on the pod today, so of course we have two recommendations to go with each. Mary, I know that you have a recommendation for Catherine Arden's The Warm Hands of Ghosts, so why don't you kick us mm -hmm. off? Okay, so my recommendation for GBR Top Off is The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. Inside the circus, you will find many tints of wonder, and you will find all your dreams, maybe a few wishes. Um, you will also find a duel between two illusionists, Marco and Celia. The duel was set up between their fathers, and what the fathers don't expect is for Marco and Celia to fall in love. And that sets off a chain of events because everything and everybody in the circus are, are all intertwined. This book will stick with you. It is a great read. It is one of my favorite recommends to give to customers. It's just a wonderful book. You will love your side characters as much as you love your main characters. All I'm going to say is be on the lookout for the twins. They are great fun. So my pick for TBR, TBR Top Off is The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. Great pick. I love that book so much. I think it pairs really nicely with Arden, who I think both of us love Catherine mm -hmm. Arden. So this was a, a 
an easy choice. I have the pleasure of recommending a book for The Fox Wife. I am so excited for people to read this book. Fox Wife is excellent. And the way that it braids our world with the supernatural is really stunning and lovely. I'm so excited for people to dive into this. But it did make me think of a short story collection called The Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu. This is one of my all-time favorites. I think it is essential reading for folks who want to marvel at craft and broaden their scope. Lou dwells in a lot of different worlds in his stories, from far off space to ancient folklore to modern day to nearish future. The way he spins these stories feels very cohesive as a collection, but each one stands on its own as a singular experience. In particular, the story Good Hunting is why I chose this title to recommend. It tells a tale of shape-shifting spirits and grave errors and very delicious vengeance and feels right at home next to the Fox Wife. So these stories are as emotionally satisfying as they are imaginative. I try to recommend this book at least once a week. I want everybody to have it in their home. I think it's stunning. And I don't tend to get too weepy with speculative fiction, but this book managed to make me weep a couple of times in the best possible way. So check out The Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu. It's wonderful. But that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Mary, where can we find you? You can follow me at my home store at BMTBN. All right, guys. That's all we've got for today. Thanks for tuning in and happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.